Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is Dr. Daniel Pitt, a scholar at the University of Sheffield with an interest in the Conservative Party, conservatism, and constitutional affairs. I met Daniel at the Axon University Conference this past June, and we struck up a great conversation. Daniel, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Brilliant. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, it is so exciting to uh, get to pick up our conversation today. I know uh, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, getting to meet you and uh, find out about some of your your research interests. Um, before we get into Roger Scruton and everything there, uh, tell us a little about yourself. Uh, what do you do? Where do you live? And how on earth do you style your amazing mustache? <laughs> well, I'll take I'll take the the latter bit first. Um, little anecdote. Um, I, when I was teaching some undergraduate students, I, I went through the module. This is what's going to be going. We're going to be doing in the year. Any questions? I normally expect hardly any hardly any hands go up. Loads of hands went up. Okay, first question about my moustache. Second question about my moustache, and I said, okay. Has anyone got a question that's not about my moustache? All the hands went down. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, actually, actually, one person asked a question about my hair. That how do I dye my hair this grey? And I said, I don't. It's natural. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think the moustache is one of the best kept secrets. So, um, but what what do I do? Um, I live in Derbyshire, in the East Midlands of England. Um, I currently um, teach at the University of Sheffield, which is in the north of England. Um, I teach there from uh, political theory, British politics, um, a little bit of political economy, um, these sort of things. Just going to be teaching British politics module this coming uh, semester, this new academic year. Uh, my main research interests focus on, like you've already said in the introduction, conservatism, as a whole, um, I'm trying to understand what it is, um, looking at the tensions, dilemma, these sort of things. Also, from a historical perspective, the Conservative Party from 1832 Reform Act, essentially when party politics came into, um, into for being, and also when British politics became national rather than essentially local competition. Um, and then, of course, a part of that is another aspect of mine is constitutional affairs um, in Britain, um, especially, but also in like Commonwealth countries which have a similar type of constitution like Australia, New Zealand, and of course, the United States as well. There is so much in there. I, I, I've been fascinated <laughs> by intellectual conservatism. Uh, really, ever since undergrad years at Hillsdale College, I just found that ah. uh, met a lot. I had a lot of professors who had drunk deep at the well of Russell Kirk and mm. uh, William Buckley and Edmund Burke, mm. T.S. Eliot. Uh, so I, I find that all fascinating. Uh, so I'd love if you could take a second and uh, at, at to to whatever length uh, you want. If you're going too long, I might I might jump in. But uh, how would you define conservatism? in the sense of a, a movement, in the sense of something international, in the sense of something very English, um, what is conservatism? Well, big question. Well, there is a big debate about what it is. Um, is it a disposition? So an Oakeshotty and Michael Oakeshott way disposition, the familiar um, gradual change 
So it's, it's an attitude of mind, this type of definition of conservatism, that um, where, where there is a debate about uh, how far can you move away from this? For example, Roger Scruton, who we will move on to talk about, who is my um, postgraduate uh, tutor, um, he would say, yes, there is a, a dispositional element, but there's a, a large P, capital P element to it as well, which, which is, of course, comes from Hugh Cecil's book from early 1900s. Um, people on the left have tried to say it's an ideology, but of course, conservatives define ideology different from a Marxist would. Um, Robert Nesbitt said that it is an ideology, in a sense, using that term as an ideology is a worldview. That is a, a way of looking at the world, a life orientation, um, rather than a systematic, all telling, all dancing way of, of, of a guidebook towards where you're going. Um, so, and then there's a the debate about that, is there a principled aspect of conservatism or is it merely a defense of the status quo? Essentially a substantive version of it, which is, has principles and the conservatives would advocate X in an uh, Y context, or there's more procedural aspect where it's all about gradual change. And then conservatives can be conservatives in any status quo, then you could be a conservative in a socialist economy, for example. So it's it's, it's extremely contestable of what conservatism is um, within the literature. So it's actually very difficult. There's no one uh, canonical text that you can go to and say, read that and you'll understand conservatism as a whole. You have to, as you said a moment ago in your question, you've got to uh, drink deeply You've got to bathe in the well. You've got to swim about a bit. There's no one place where you can say, look, jump in here and you'll be done. So you've got to read many different sources uh, to, to have a, a wider overview of what conservatism is. I think that's a really helpful way to think about it. I was I had a, a student at Thales College last week ask me to uh, describe the contemporary political scene in America. And particularly, he wanted to know what exactly is this thing called the new right. And uh, uh, first off, I was kind of like, well, this is exciting because I'm, I'm moving from teaching high school students where it's 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 very difficult to have uh, truly political discussions with high school students because they can't vote yet. Mm. And they are just echoing their parents' views. And if you make a misstep in that conversation, you can get some very angry parent emails. Uh, but yeah. with college students, it's a totally different ballgame. And I went back to something that I found helpful about eight years ago when I tried to answer this question. And I, I drew my uh, big horseshoe diagram and had kind of <laughs> the left and the right. And I started putting different groups, like here's traditional conservatism, here's like mm. progressivism. Here's the American Democratic Party. Here's the neocons and the GOP. And before I, by the time I finished, like, I looked at my horseshoe and thought, this is not at all a helpful diagram. There's <laughs> 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 like eight different intersecting groups that are all defined in opposition to each other. And some of them have positive views of things. And some of them are former leftists who just rebranded and tried to say they're now rightist. And is it yeah. a rightist thing? I don't really know. And mm -hmm. where and, and the new right fits in there somewhere. All that to say, I, I think that anytime we're getting into this, how do we even define a political movement? I, it, it gets mm. to be so complicated 
that there's mm. my sense is that most times students want a simple answer. Yeah. The answer mm. is never nearly as simple as they want. The answer is really, well, here, let me hand you six books. Go read these. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about them. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And there's the, the pop the, there's a definitional problem with the new right, because in the British literature, the new right means Reagan and Thatcher. And now oh. we've got a new we've got a new right, which means, of course, post-liberalism uh, and, and that new growing. So it, it, I wrote for the University of Bookman on a, on a, a review of another book. But at the end, I wrote that it's a critique of the it's the new new right, which is a, or the or critique of the old new right, which is very, very frustrating in that sense. So, yeah, that the old right would be some would like be the 1960s conservatism mm. um, where the new right was Margaret Thatcher and Reagan. So now we have another new right, just like we have a, a new conservatism group uh, in in Britain. Uh, new one just came up, Danny Kruger, MP and uh, others. And in 1920s, round Stanley Baldwin, we also had a new a new conservatism as well. So we seem to have new right, new conservatisms uh, coming along multiple times, which makes things even more complicated. Well, and, and certainly, I mean, I think uh, one of the things I appreciate so much about uh, reading Roger Scruton is that he he manages to simultaneously demonstrate an appreciation for all the ways this conservative disposition has manifested in previous generations. And yet, mm. uh, maybe to uh, to to steal from Homer for a second, to, he sings the song again in our time. He seems to be writing mm. about a a conservatism that's that's rooted but is fresh. Uh, so maybe we can bridge over to uh, talking about Sir Roger for a moment. Um, I know you mentioned a second ago that he was your your tutor uh, in, mm -hmm. in uh, graduate school. Um, mm -hmm. Walk us through some of that that connection. Uh, how did you first encounter Sir Roger? Uh, what what did, had you read his books before you studied with him, or did y'all just kind of meet in person? What what was that like? So first of all, um, my original studies were um, in business economics. Um, international business. So I did an undergraduate degree, bachelor, then I did a master's degree in international business. And I, I thought, this is all great. I've got all this knowledge about uh, business practices, how the economy works. It, it wasn't, I thought, where are my other values that I come into? Where do this other debates come in? Where does the idea of marriage sit in with, with HR? human resource policies and so on. Um, where does the family come in? Where does this? So I wanted a more rounder education after that. Books about conservatism. And I can't remember which one was first, but I, I remember the first three that I read. It was Roger Scruton's The Meaning of Conservatism, mm. uh, Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind, and then Edwin Burke's um, Reflection on the Revolution in France. They were the first three that I read. Um, I can't remember whose was first. Was it Kurtz or Scruton's? I couldn't remember. Be a conservative, um, and I just thought this is this is wonderful. I agree with so much of this. I, I it was quite it was amazing how much I could agree with something that I've never read before. Hmm. It was it, it was quite. A, um, so I read his work for about three four years. And I thought, right, I'm going to contact him. 
uh, I'm going to send him an email and these sort of things. And then I signed up when I realized that he was teaching at the University of Buckingham. He was doing an MA. Even though I already had a master's degree, I thought, right, I'm going to go and get another one. <laughs> but this time in philosophy, <laughs> and I'm going to be taught by R Roger Scruton. I thought, I've got to. I've got to do this. So I signed up and I went along. And I think that was in 2017, 18. Mm. Um, so I first met him in a little uh, old Georgian Bloomsbury house down in the basement. Um, I went there and he said, hello, Daniel. And I thought, oh, gosh, this, he knows my name. <laughs> so yep. he was he was he was he was lovely. And that was the first time I met him. And. Another staff member who was later on Roger's research assistant, Samuel Hughes, um, he was also there. He was very much involved with Dr. Samuel Hughes now um, in in that whole teaching of that of that that master's degree. So you read his books, fell in love with his ideas, and then found the opportunity to actually study with him. Yeah, exactly. That's yep. exactly what I did. And it was it was down in London, uh, even though it was at the University of Buckingham, it was a London program. And we were in the Pall Mall, which is where all the, the, the gentlemen clubs are and uh, from the 18th, 18th century onwards. And we were in the, the Reform Club, which is ironic, really, because the Reform Club was the headquarters of the Liberal Party originally. And in the loos there, they've got all the cartoons uh, degrading all Tories from all the old magazines, punch magazines and so on. So it was interesting. One time, Roger and I were there at the same time and we were just giggling and uh, laughing at that, that there were two Tories in the reform club. Um, and there were all these pictures denigrating Tories. So that was... That, that was quite something. And of course, we were taught down in the downstairs in the basement. I'm sure that wasn't on purpose because there was a big picture of Gladstone over <laughs> the top of the table where we were going. And I'm much more of a Disraeli man, as you can see the picture behind me. So oh, okay. That was that that was quite something. Now, let me ask you a couple questions about that. Um, first off, help us with uh, what exactly you, you said the Reform Club. Uh, what what kind of, you called that a gentleman's club. Help us with a bit more of what that means, because that does not have a positive connotation in, in America. Oh, okay, uh, okay. I don't think no. you have the kind of club you're describing. So help our listeners know okay. what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, that, that was, yeah, it was not, it's not a strip club, put it that way. Um, but a, a gentleman's club, uh, private members club, um, it was normally uh, it, when it was first, they originally were for the aristocratic upper class mm. men um, to wine, dine, socialize and network. And when political parties first came about in the UK, these were the manifestations. This is where the headquarters of these parties came before they became more independent. The conservative okay. one was the Colton Club. Uh, so again, a, a gentleman's club, private members club, um, and along like at Disraeli or or Salisbury or before, you had to become a member of these clubs. So you had to become a member of the Colton Club if you really wanted to progress with the Conservative Party or the Reform Club of the Liberal Party. 
Um, and then when the parties became more organized and they had that of the clubs, of these clubs. So try and imagine suits. You had to wear a suit, tie, uh, uh, shoes, um, newspapers, Victorian reds, golds, greens, busts of all the greats. That's that's the type of club I'm talking about. Oh, well, I mean, it just, in, in one sense, it's hard for me to imagine, but I feel like I've seen this in lots of movies. But so yeah. your, your studies with Doc, with Rod, Sir Roger were not, you're not meeting in a classroom. You are sitting no. down in armchairs, perhaps with, I, I'm imagining pipes and cigars as part of <laughs> the, just the atmosphere, maybe, maybe mm. someone bringing drinks as y'all are discussing. Yes. And it's just a... Yeah rip-roaring conversation and and everyone is just a feast for the mind and and the body is that is that mm. is that is that the atmosphere am i am i imagine that correctly you are apart from there was no no tobacco oh, no okay. cigarette those sort of things but the first part would be uh there were there was around 13 of us um and roger would invite guests who would come along roger would stand at one end of the table he would deliver about a 40 minute lecture um so there would be no powerpoint slide or anything like that uh and then there would be the guest uh so another eminent person for example um professor anthony o'hare was there another prominent conservative um and others uh we would adjourn next door we would have a glass of wine uh or two roger would always order more uh, and then we would go back to the original room and that would be laid for dinner. And there would either be a two or three course dinner and over dinner, then there would be the seminar. And that would be about an hour and a half talking um, minimum. If Roger was really on form and he ordered plenty more wine, that would continue experience. And then we were sat in, in many chair, wing back chairs and so on. So it was the educational, and it's still like that, I'm told, today as well at the University of Buckingham and these London programmes. So it, it is a brilliant way. But Roger always would order more wine, and he would insist that he chose the wine too, which, of course, I, I drink, therefore I am. So we were going to, a, we were going to allow him to do so. And, and I assume that – I mean, so what, what, what was Roger like as a person? I mean, you're, you're describing – this, the, he does not sound like a stodgy professor who's just always deep in the books. This, he sounds very lively the way you're describing him. Yeah, well, th there were multiple Rogers as far as I'm concerned. There's the, the spiky Roger, as is uh, now widow Sophie referred to him in the 1980s. He, um, he was much more very angry at the left for the way that he was treated and... Um, um so but he mellowed so i got the mellow roger he was much more mellow when i met him but he was very witty very dry wit he would change when i first got to know him he was very formal um he was very reserved and a couple of about six months nine months in you he you he, he, he changed he became much more softer more mellow more more jovial um, these sort of things. So I think that if you only had a briefing meeting with Roger, you would have a different view of him. Mm -hmm. um, I, that's quite similar to me, actually. Um, in, when you first meet me, I can be quite, I'm working you out before I start then 
opening up and that was the same with him um but yes definitely he was a man of action as well he contemplative life was drawn to him but the active life too uh he was active in the 1980s in underground universities and undermining communism in czechoslovakia uh poland hungary he was active in setting up a magazine the salisbury review um he was active advocating things he set up the, the conservative philosophy group which met in london still does um so he was very active as well so he had these two aspects to him the contemplated life in books but also the active life i think that's been quite usual with conservatives since burke really that the idea of that you build this beautiful ship and keep it in dock forever rather than go out and sailing it so um there's these two aspects of of scruton I think that's really interesting because I remember when I did the uh, seminar at Macosta, we focused a lot on uh, Russell Kirk's view of conservatism. I think he would be probably more on the dispositional end of the spectrum you described earlier and seeing mm. conservatism more as that disposition. And at one point uh, he wrote a book that was titled A Program for Conservatives that uh, people snapped up only to discover that uh, what Kirk called a program was really a book-length description of that that disposition and that way of life. And his way yeah. of being an active conservative was to live in Macosta and be very hospitable with his home. And that's that's really what he saw as the proper action for conservatives. So mm. I guess it's so interesting to be able to put that that contemplative side and that scholarly side together with a a very active concern for really what what should our way, our our communal way of life look like, and mm. I know um, Scruton is the only conservative that I've read who has very strong views on uh, something as mundane as. And I don't mean to be disrespectful to architecture by calling it mundane, or to urban planners by calling them mundane. Uh, but Scruton mm. had very very strong views on the way cities ought to be laid out, and that mm. if we're going to mm. organize life for certain ends, then the the way the city should be structured should facilitate those ends rather than make it more difficult. And I think that's mm. something that American conservatives don't really pay nearly as much attention to. Uh, but but I wonder if that's a place where that contemplation and that action kind of joined in in Scruton's thought. Yeah. Well, I, you're absolutely right to point that out with Scruton. That was it. Actually, Scruton, he first didn't come. He, he was a philosopher of aesthetics first. That's what he was a professor in rather than politics. Um, and then his big book in 1980, which I already mentioned. There we go. Beauty. Very short introduction. On beauty. It, it's, a, it's a short book, but big ideas. And it's difficult to read. It takes time. You've got to absorb it and take it in. Um, his his let we had about ten lectures on ten different topics with Scruton, and by far the most passionate was when we came to aesthetics. We had metaphysics, uh, we had aesthetics, we had politics, we had all of all of these. Um, with actually, you mentioned Russell Kirk. Russell Kirk wrote on architecture too. Oh. Um, so, uh, um, but I think you're right that. Um, American conservatives definitely, I think the American conservative magazine for a while had Scruton write for them and he wrote about urban planning. And I think this was a really important um, aspect of where American conservatives can learn from Scruton. Uh, um, 
just to quote Winston Churchill, um, Churchill thought that we shaped our buildings and then our buildings then shape us. Mm. So the place where we live, where we dwell, where we eat, where we sleep, where we meet with others, where we meet with the stranger, all impact on us because it's in our everyday, they shape us. Mm -hmm. So we shape them originally and then they shape us too. And even you can see that the way that streets are built, the way we walk down streets, the places where we can meet, where we can talk. Uh, if we wish to, um, this communal trust, where can we build this communal trust? Where can we come out of our private and into the public and commune as citizens? So this was deeply important uh, to Roger and his, his view on art, his view on architecture and the view of politics all come into one with architecture. He saw it as a, architecture is, is, is political. It has a political aspect, but it's an art and it's an art that we all have to live with. Your neighbor may build something that he or she thinks is pretty fantastic. And we may think it's ghastly and we have to live with it. But a painting that you hang in your living room, that person only has to live with it. Perhaps mm. the spouse and their children, but it, it has a public, it's a public, has a public impact for positive or negative. So I think this is really important sort of how do we live with each other uh, and in the buildings that we live live in i think the the book of his that i've read that makes that argument most clearly was his uh i think it's his 2010 gifford lectures collecting into mm. the face of the world and i just mm. i cannot look at skyscrapers the same way after reading <laughs> his lectures because he makes this fascinating argument about the way that the building is oriented outward and he, he starts this with ancient Greece and the temple and the idea that the temple was originally constructed to represent the God looking and speaking outward to the world. And so mm -hmm. as the, as the, the petitioner is approaching the temple, even that approach is a conversation with the God. And then mm -hmm. he jumps to this contrast to the modern faceless skyscraper that mm -hmm. is stripped away and he walks through all these architectural elements that I, I don't really remember or understand to a great degree, but I, I imagine an architect would, but he describes classical mm. architecture as having all these pieces that would create this sort of dialogue with people as they approach the piece of architecture in contrast to modernism that conscientiously stripped all of that away in order to build at giant scale using steel and glass. Mm -hmm. And so he, he talks about literally the facelessness of these buildings. And since I read that, I've, I've been in several large cities and in various downtown centers. And it's pretty <laughs> rare that I'll see a perfect example of the faceless building. Instead, there's usually some attempt. It's as if the architect can't quite bring himself to do a truly non-communicative building. Uh, there's usually some attempt to like bring some classical elements in, but... At the same time, it, it doesn't have nearly the same effect as seeing a piece of classical architecture that has the entablature and the columns and it frames it such that there is this face looking out as if like I am invited to be in the in the building space through the very structure itself. And I, mm -hmm. I just thought that's such a fascinating argument. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I, I think that's great. Um, and, and the way that buildings make you look up as well. And the way that they they are are meant to be a connection, a part of of the surroundings. How they they meant to make you feel at home. You're part of somewhere. 
many of these faces are, are they're faceless they are nowhere you could be anywhere these these buildings could be in sydney australia they could be in dublin ireland they could be in in um in any any place pick them up drop them that there's there's no local building materials there is there isn't there the cotswolds for example in 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 england which roger um loved and also russell kirk uh loved as well um he uh, ford's museum about you know he picks up all these different buildings build them all into one bit museum and russell kirk said his favorite one was the cotswolds cottage and he said of the 1500s um because it was it was beautiful and you could also not just being beautiful but also you could see it was from somewhere that particular stone that was used you can see that the, the craftsman's hand on it um so it it, it it embeds you in place and to use scruton's phrase it's it, it provides oikophilia provides this uh this love of home oikophilia i don't that's a that's a great phrase i love that from the uh oikos and the philos the the lover of home love of home that's that's fantastic um, exactly well daniel let me ask you this i know i scruton was the, a prolific writer and i have not by any stretch been able to read through the corpus of his published writings um but i i imagine you've read several of them if not all of them uh which of his books have you found most helpful and uh maybe this may be a different uh different kind of book but which have you most enjoyed reading Oh, oh, that's that that the enjoyment that one's the most difficult to answer. Um, I haven't read all of them because people debate if it's between fifty or sixty books he's written. So <laughs> if I, I I could I could just try and read Scruton for the rest of my life and still and still struggle to do it all as well as having to read everything for um, for, for for teaching and research and so on. But mm -hmm. I've I've read a, a good whack. Um, Look, for me, because I'm interested in politics first and foremost, um, I, I is political writings are the ones that's informed me the most. So, the meaning the meaning of conservatism, which pu first published in 1980, um, how to be a conservative, different works. So I think that's because he goes through the truth in liberalism, truth in socialism, truth in conservatism. So it's a, it's a great book in that way. Um, then uh, actually a funny little anecdote I was reading, and I know that Josh, you've read this one too, sexual desire and my other, <laughs> you got a copy of it there. There we go. Yeah. So I had, I had that next, I had that next to my, my TV and a friend of mine came in, <laughs> came into my flat at the time and he just saw that, you know, the spine sexual desire. And he said to me, what are you reading? What is that? Why have you got pornographic uh, content next to your TV? I said, it's not. Have a look at it. And he goes, there are no. Said, yeah, it's a philo philosophical treatise on sexual desire. Yeah, all right, then put it back down again. So that was. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I don't know what he was expecting of me. So that, that was that was probably one of the funniest. But on human nature, he died, Princeton University Press. Uh, and I got him uh, to sign it for me. Um, 
to Daniel, best wishes, Roger Scruton. Yes. And he asked me what, he asked me why, why this one? And I, I'm really interested um, in the idea of sacred obligations about piety. And mm. in this, he was going to return it to this. And it was something that I wanted to do as well. And I didn't do it in my MA dissertation in the end. But he was very, 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 this is something he thought was absolutely fundamental to conservatism, which is this idea of that you have unchosen obligations. Mm. This is what, this is a fundamental difference from liberalism. Liberalism uh, believes that every single choice that you make is, should be voluntary. And if it is voluntary, it's more binding than if it's not. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends. If you want to let me know what you thought about the episode, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Your host is Josh Herring. Madison Kay is our audio engineer. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.